0: Hello, everyone. It's September 19th, 2023. This week, we're taking a look at Dawn Aerospace, a Kiwi company that wants to build a space plane. I guess it's more of a first-stage plane, a concept we've seen pop up over the years. Does Dawn have what it takes to make it work? Who knows? But let's talk about what we do know and lift off. Andrew hey, for The Tower. Welcome to episode 427 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. Welcome back, Ben. Are you feeling better this week?
1: Uh, oh, be- better. Not 100%, but thank you guys for covering last week. It it was, it was bad. I, I mean, I got tested for COVID and they said, uh, like a PCR test came back negative. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't COVID, but it was something very, very similar. And just, I mean, it's crazy. My partner tested positive for strep throat and I didn't, but we had almost identical timelines and symptoms. So Go figure. But, um, yeah, last week was, it was a full seven days after my symptoms had started and I was still just so foggy. It was really gross.
0: Like you maybe sound a little, I mean, you said that you didn't test for strep throat. So did you lose your voice at all? Or did you just sound a little?
1: Yeah. I I lost my voice a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I've been just, you know, coughing ever since.
0: Well, we're glad you're back. (laughs) Thank you. So I guess, um, any, uh, I don't, know, I don't know if there's any space top of the show news.
1: No, I mean, the only thing that, like, literally the only topic that we came up with uh, to put into the show this week uh, got written up as something that we're going to do, except for um, Stoke Space's video of their upper stage um, static fire test. And one thing to note about it is it looks like the top of the thing is is spouting fire like. What what are those things called? Where they burn off? Um, oh
2: fl- uh, flare stack?
1: Yeah, like a flare stack. Yeah, like the the beginning of uh, Blade Runner, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And I I think that's actually their uh, RCS thruster. I think they're doing a methane uh, RCS thruster as well. Um, and in the in the notes that come with the video, the the post on Twitter, um, they said um, they said something about. The RCS thrusters firing as hard as they could because they were simulating a a roll that the vehicle wasn't coming out of. Um, And because they were running um, control software and everything with uh, simulated data where they had to and real data where they could pull it off of the actual vehicle. And so they told the vehicle that it was rolling. And so apparently it just started dumping all the role authority it could into those thrusters and so they you know they kind of spurt a couple times when they more or less stay on the whole time and it it looks like something off of a metal concert Uh, Mm -hmm. so it's pretty cool
0: Yeah, so I guess not a particularly super eventful spaceflight week, but I did wanted to, to talk about Dawn Aerospace. I kind of wanted to bring that up. I know we mentioned it in a short and sweet back in episode 404, which uh, at this point was, I don't know, a couple months ago at least. This is a company that we don't know much about, kind of a new one. Um, they do manufacture a lot of engines, a lot of smaller scale engines. That's kind of what they're known for, but they are getting into the... Uh, space plane business, which I don't know how you feel about that, but that is the next step that they're taking. Mm-hmm. Um And so we mentioned the test that they did of their Mark II Aurora, and this is a, a 1-100th scale uh, flight article, I guess you can call it. I'm not sure. And I'm getting that scale just because it seems to weigh exactly 1-100th of what the full-scale version would. So I'm just going by that. I don't know if, if the actual dimensions, I suppose that's not the case because now that I think about it-
2: Trying to envision that a 100 times right. longer, that's a-
0: 737.
1: But it is 1 100th mass, so... Well, I mean, 1 100th scale... Yeah, I guess technically that would be like one inch to 100 inches, but maybe they just mean volumetrically. So it's like...
0: That's what I'm saying, yeah.
1: square cube.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly. Oh, okay. But yeah, so I mean, I, I didn't want to recount, or I didn't want to go into too much about that first test flight. It was pretty straightforward. They flew it not particularly high. I think it was just up to like 8,000 feet, brought it back down. It was just a quick little test. Um, but yeah, I did want to talk a little bit more about that vehicle. And then the future upgrades they're going to be making to essentially that same vehicle, and then the next one uh, that they have planned and that's the full scale which is the Mark III and that's like the big boy and we'll see. So yeah, this is mostly just uh, some information taken from an interview with the CEO whose name I didn't write down. Stefan Powell Powell? I believe. Hmm. Yeah, Stefan Powell. Uh, Let's go over the Mark II Aurora. So it's 4.5 meters long uh, 2.4 meter wingspan and just uh, 250 kilograms that's not very big so he said that it's built like a brick shithouse and so uh, the reason why I just wanted to mention that is because this this kind of like underlines the difference between this version and then the next version that they're going to build. So they kind of gave themselves a much wider safety margin uh, just to make sure that they were able to bring it back. So um, it had a lot of extra carbon for, you know, like structural support and so forth. Um, And the uh, fuel tanks, I believe, were inside the fuselage, but uh, they're going to be put in the wings for future upgrades. But as far as this one goes, yeah, very, very, very heavy, and it doesn't have a second stage. So it's just this single aircraft, essentially. It's not even really a spacecraft. The engine, however, is a pump-fed peroxide kerosene engine, and it can operate in both bipropellant or monopropellant mode. And I'm trying to remember, if it's in monopropellant mode, is that just taking the yeah. peroxide and running that over like a catalyst or something? And is that what you're doing? I'm not know. sure maybe, how you maybe, do
1: it. Maybe they're burning kerosene atmospheric, like with atmospheric. But like that that doesn't sound right. Like it that doesn't yeah. sound right.
0: Do you mean it doesn't sound right in that you wouldn't call it monoprop mode? You would call it, I don't know, it
1: w- It's that it, atmospheric? It, I don't think that they would have an air breathing engine and we wouldn't know about it like an air breathing engine and we wouldn't be super excited about it.
0: Yeah.
1: True. <laughs> Which I mean, it put, you know, has a very high, uh, estimation of us, but also like looking at the photos, it doesn't look like there's, you know, I obviously it could do air breathing and not have all of the crazy, like high altitude, high speed, uh, pre not pre cooler, like pre warmer, uh, hardware. But it, I just, I don't, even though they've got a lower ISP in that mode, I I don't think it's low enough to account for the kind of like ramjet losses you would experience. So I yeah I th- I think it's got to be I don't know may- maybe just a totally different propellant that they flow well, into the engine.
2: Well, what about just I mean the just flow the peroxide hydrogen peroxide? I mean that's a com a fairly common monopropellant. Yeah, but do right? you
1: think it's do you think it's high enough that the the that uh what what's the stated 1,700 newtons of thrust in monoprop mode. I don't know if you can get that out of hydrogen peroxide, can you?
2: Maybe it's just a matter of how much... The hydrogen peroxide is going to set the ISP, mostly, and just how...
1: You and know, the thrust is hot how big it is.
2: and how much volume you're firing out the back, I think, will more affect your thrust. And so maybe we're just biased because most monoprop is going to be like a little tiny, like, you know, RCS, or you know, thruster or something like that. And not the main engine that's supposed to push the vehicle. But I don't know.
0: <laughs> I mean, how much is 1,700 Newtons really? What is a single Newton? It's not a whole lot. So.
2: No,
1: it's, it's, it's not a, a lot. But like consider that that's, that's more than half of the two and a half... That's what I was thinking when you
2: compare it to it when it's got the kerosene as well. Exactly, yeah.
1: Yeah, because half half of two and a half is one point two five. So like one thousand two hundred and fifty newtons is a lot lower than seventeen hundred. I know. I don't. I don't know. Like I don't think any of us are super familiar with (laughs) uh, just cramming uh, hydrogen peroxide (laughs) through an engine instead. So
2: yeah, there's there's at least one company that's selling it. That has a, yeah, a hydrogen peroxide monoprop that can go up to 250 newtons. So we've got about a factor of seven or eight (laughs) we got to (laughs) clear. Here's another one that, depending on the thrust chamber size, can go from 75 newtons to 150 newtons. But yeah, I think think the biggest thing that's hanging me up, I think, is what you're pointing out, Ben, that 1,700 versus the 2,400 or whatever, that's like... Why even bother burning the kerosene if you're getting a yeah. 50% increase?
0: There's something there that doesn't quite add up, but.
2: And it's throttleable.
0: Yeah, so this Mark II version might actually be commercially viable for a small five kilograms or lower payload. And this is just for suborbital flights. So obviously, something this small is not going to make it to orbit, but you can do suborbital stuff with it. And the idea is that uh, since this is a fully reusable vehicle, you could do impressive suborbital stuff that normally you would need a sounding rocket for, and sounding rockets are not generally reusable. I don't think any of them are. So that's kind of the selling point here, is that you can do lots and lots lots and lots and lots of suborbital experiments and not have to ever build a new rocket because you're just taking off and landing from an airport. And it can be any conventional airport, at least at this 1 100th scale. So the Mark IIa, the upgraded version, uh, they're going to upgrade the airframe and that's to help it with the dynamic forces that it will be experiencing when launching still uh, suborbital, uh, but going higher and faster because this first test, like I said, just went to about 8,000 feet or so, but they want to get up to the Karman line. So right around 100 kilometers. So it's going to look the exact same as the First, Mark II, and it will be aerodynamically identical, so nothing changed there, but just a lot of changes on the insides. The fuel will be in the wings, so that'll be much more space for the peroxide, Um, and they do specify that, so not the kerosene, but the peroxide. So, again, this does seem to point in the direction of there's something special about the peroxide here. I don't know why just the peroxide would need to be put in the wings and not the kerosene. Maybe something to do with the weight of the fuels relative to one another. Um, and the Mark ii will have a full RCS system. Now, the full-scale version, which there's not nearly as much known about this. I don't think that the company themselves have really decided on a lot of things. It'll be obviously much bigger, about 100 times the size. One interesting stipulation is that it needs to be certifiable as an aircraft, and this is because they want to take off from airports, and the idea is to fly twice a day. That's the specific number, and this will have a second stage, and that second stage will carry about 300 kilograms to orbit, although that number is likely to change. Um, that's just according to the CEO. Uh, this is all still pretty up in the air. Uh, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> but the second stage integration, uh, interestingly, is not yet determined, because that was something that I was wondering about. Is this going to be kind of like a Skylon concept, where you put the payload inside the vehicle, and then you have you know these bay doors to open up? Yeah. Or, yeah. Do you, or do you stick it on top like uh, that DARPA? What's the DARPA vehicle that I'm thinking? Of I can't think of it, but uh yeah. there's, a, there's a DARPA vehicle where you put the payload or the second stage on top, or you can put it underneath as well. And they haven't even made that determination yet.
1: I can't imagine that they're not going to go just straight underneath it because just aerodynamically, that's way more proven mm-hmm. out, right? It does look like there's
2: some concept art where they've got the Mark III space plane over the Karman line and then a dash line that shows the upper stage. And it's a conventional looking upper stage. That would make me think you know, clamshell kind of deployment. But like you're saying, I think it's not – it's up in the air at this point. (laughs) You know, they're Mm -hmm. still uh, not not determined. And so, yeah, slinging it underneath is – probably easier than this.
0: But then again, if it's underneath, I, I guess if it's a small enough payload, 300 kilograms and you're putting it inside a whole upper stage, uh, how easily can that fit underneath the vehicle? Cause we're not talking about, this isn't going to be like, you know, a strata launch type yeah, of a vehicle. Yeah, it's
2: not an aircraft.
0: Yeah. There's probably a lot of changes that might be made, uh, going forward. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's totally a possibility. Uh, the idea is to get about 1000 reuses and they think that that's kind of realistic. That's a quote, kind of realistic. Uh, um, um, and again, this is twice a day launching these payloads. And, you know, we've talked about this, I don't know, it seems like a thousand times. Like, how realistic is that? Not so much from an engineering POV, but just are you really going to be launching that often, these small payloads? Like, is there a market for that?
2: I think it's pretty neat. I mean, if I understand you correctly, right, they're they're trying to build up two business models simultaneously. One that can do suborbital tests that are like with a fully reusable mm-hmm vehicle and then one that can do the proper, you know, cheap and affordable to get to Leo and flying at a high cadence that they're aspiring to.
0: And a lot of this is being funded, both the initial vehicle and uh, this future one is being funded by, according to the CEO, about half of it is, you know, venture capital. And then the other half is uh, sales because, you know, they do sell their own hardware to other companies. And and
2: you always got to say you're flying, you're going to fly at like such a super high cadence when you're trying to raise...
0: Money. yeah exactly <laughs> so one benefit of this particular system like why take off as a plane from a runway is it if you have an engine out you can always just glide back so there's a certain part of the launch, I guess you can call it that, or takeoff, uh, there's a certain time when gliding back probably is not an option, but a much larger percentage of that flight time, you actually can come back, um, which is something that a first stage of a rocket can't do. So that's one plus. Um, and, and that kind of leads to a question that I had, because I know that, you know, we've talked about space planes before. What is the benefit of a space plane really? You know, like I don't, because, you know, Ben, you've pointed out multiple times that obviously it doesn't get you any closer to space really than just a conventional rocket except that maybe you could launch from wherever you want if you, if you want to you know take off and go somewhere first but but again this is not a strata launch type of a vehicle I don't think that it's really capable of that um, this is a little bit closer to a rocket somewhere between a jet that carries a second stage and a rocket that carries a second stage it's kind of like a little bit of both yeah
1: right the the what you mean is the loiter time isn't as high right but I mean it, it does give you it, yeah, it does give you more flexibility for launch and for landing. You could land in a different place, mm-hmm. um, and then you know they say the cadence is going to be higher. I don't know why it would be easier to refurbish this than a um, than you know a normal rocket stage. But you know if you're not having to fish it out of the water, that's certainly something that makes it easier to get that cadence up. But yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. Like I don't I don't know. It's really cool. It's something that I would love to see. But like yeah, what's the the real like market breaking. Utility.
0: Yeah. Something sort of instinctually tells me that space planes, they have their place. I'm just not quite sure what it is.
1: <laughs> yeah. Even if we haven't found the place. Yeah, I agree with you. All
0: right. So let's just do two short and sweet again this week. Uh, ben, what's the first? All right. Up first, Artemis two
1: gets its engines. Well one of them. The first RS-25 for the first crewed Artemis mission to the moon was bolted into place on September 11th. The teams at Michoud followed updated installation procedures that addressed the 60 quote do better items identified after prepping the Artemis 1 SLS. After installation is complete, propellant leak checks and electrical checks will be performed just as they were for Artemis 1, but this time Michoud will also perform the pneumatic and hydraulic checks that had previously waited for the green run campaign at Stennis. And
2: next up, Firefly Firefly launches Victus Nox. Firefly successfully completed a USSF mission to launch a Millennium Space smallsat into LEO on a quick timeline. The two companies had been on a hot standby since late August and upon receiving the alert to launch, had a 60-hour window to transport the satellite to Vandenberg and ready the payload. Once Space Force gave the final call to launch, Firefly then had 24 hours to encapsulate the payload, made it to their Alpha launch vehicle, and stand ready to launch at the first available window. The mission, Victus Knox, ultimately took off 27 hours after the call, setting a new record for responsive space launch.
0: So moving on to this week in Space Flight History, uh, we have six winners, and they all get the bonus points, too. So we have PsyCloud, the Greek Astro, Negative Entropy, uh, and Deathkin, uh, and Uncle Willy. So a lot of people got the correct answer. They all get the bonus points because if they knew the event, then it's pretty obvious what the reference uh or what the clue was in reference to and the clue was big <laughs> f-ing red spill. so i have to bleep that out again um so yeah what is this red spill
2: yeah so this spill happened on the 22nd of september 1981 and it was a nitrogen tetroxide spill from columbia while it was vertical at pad 39a and so uh yeah good job guessers um so right so There's a lot of different fuel going into uh, the space shuttle, right? You've got the liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and then in a bunch of different locations, you've got your hypergols, right? Which, of course, let's just go back to very basics, right? They ignite when they come into contact. And so um, a combination of, well, not a combination of, but either MMH or UDMH is used uh, for the fuel, the hypergolic fuel on the, on the orbiter and uh, nitrogen tetroxide is used as the oxidizer. And so this uh, powers the uh, or is the propellant for the RCS system, as well as for the two ohms pods for orbital maneuvering at the back of the uh, space plane. And so, OK, so in this particular one, it happened uh, at the RCS system and in particular the forward RCS pod. And so there's RCS in the back of the plane and then there's also a a pod at the front of the plane and it's pretty cool like it really is a pod like you could lift the whole thing out of the orbiter and then it looks like someone like you know those videos where it's something that looks normal and then they cut into it and it turns out to be cake it's it's kind of like if uh, the shuttle was cake and you could just suddenly slice into its front nose and remove a slice and it just like yeah
0: yeah i mean they just like little spheres right there's a lot of spheres throughout shuttle and cake
1: cake is just a bunch of really tiny spheres so <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> that is absolutely true yeah and yeah and so yeah so yeah the, the the fuel itself um uh or sorry the propellants themselves are in these spherical tanks uh within the uh the forward rcs pod and uh and yeah and so if you were to look at this pod you've got the nozzles that are uh uh, what's the word? They're kind of canted, right? They're kind of at an angle into the body of the orbiter. And uh, a little to the left uh, forward, or not to the left necessarily, a little forward uh, of them uh, towards the nose cone, uh, there's a panel that you can access. And that panel uh, is called the uh, the fuel or oxidizer uh, purge and drain panel. And that's the one that's relevant to where the spill happened. And then uh, kind of, you know, towards the rear end of the uh FRCS is the, the fuel or oxidizer servicing panel. And so that one just has, I guess, less uh, less pipes and you, you don't uh, do your fueling through there. You do other stuff through there. Because right there's going to be, you know, uh, vent valves and purge valves and all sorts of, you know, uh, umbilicals that you got to hook up when you want to do your fueling. And so uh, the fuel is on the port side or left uh, side of the vehicle. And then the oxidizer, the nitrogen tetrox- tetroxide, is uh, loaded on the starboard side, the right side of the uh, orbiter, okay? Now, on that oxidizer side, the two doors, these two kind of access uh, service panels, um, are uh, were called AP28-12 and AP28-0. 12 was uh, the, the, the forward one, the purge and drain panel, and uh, zero was the uh, the other one, the uh, just the servicing panel. Now, of course, Uh, This is after uh, August 31st when uh, Columbia, uh, this is 1981, right? This is actually in preparation for STS-2. So, right, this is the first time they're actually turning around uh, the space shuttle. And so on August 31st, they rolled it out to the pad. And um, just to, I guess, you know, give a picture real quick of what the pad is really like, right? Um... When Apollo was rolling to the pad and bringing its Saturn fives or Saturn one B's on its little milk uh stool, it had the launch umbilical tower on the actual mobile launcher and so when it came time for shuttle, they literally just you know sliced that off and just fixed it directly onto the pad and so that's called the fixed service structure, and that's what looks like it they changed the red paint <laughs> uh but otherwise, a lot of it is literally the same you know tower that was once uh Uh, attached to the mobile launchers. And then, um, but because of the way that they would load the payloads into the shuttle's cargo bay while it was vertical, and they wanted to do that at the pad a lot of times, so they needed to have this second part that was connected to the fixed service structure on a gigantic hinge. And that was called the rotating service structure. And so that would be able to swing around once the shuttle was in position and then kind of encapsulate and mate to the shuttle. And then you could fuel up your shuttle that way. Uh, in particular, that's when you would fuel the hypergals. Um, but you could also, that would be when you would exchange and put in the payload and do all your uh, do a lot of servicing to prepare the shuttle to fly. And so you got that swinging uh, rot- rotating service structure, RC- RSS, and then that's attached on a hinge to the fixed uh, service structure or FSS. Okay. Now if you ever look at the rotating service structure at the very top of it, there's basically, it looks like a box that kind of sticks out and that's called the RCS room. And so the idea of the RCS room is it's your main way to access the FRCS compartment um as well as the windows uh just because they're there as well and you know the nose and so it has a few different levels and they're 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 shaped to the uh the orbiter's um you know outer mold line and yeah and you, and they have some you know flip down panels and f- or flip down platforms and flip up platforms and different ways to access different parts but anyway that's kind of where you do your servicing and so uh, what had happened on September 22nd in 1981, the, R- the shuttle had, was now at the pad, the rotating service structure had swung around, and then up in the RCS room, you had basically, you know, they started fueling the Hypergalls in the FRCS. Interestingly enough there too, there's also a uh, a very scary ladder, and it's it's a ladder that like you know, leans forward at kind of a curved shape because it's curved to, the, again, the, the outer mold line of the orbiter, but it, it's not supported from below at two points, only at the one point. And so it's kind of like leaning over the edge. And so it has basically a rail that it's attached to at the top end of the ladder that keeps it from just tumbling forward. And there's this this graphic that I guess we can share, but like it's kind of like the way that you can access the windows and the parts of the the orbiter that are farther from the platform. But if the if the orbiter wasn't there, then it would just be like a uh, what like a 200 foot drop directly underneath you, and there's kind of nothing that would stop you other than just holding onto the ladder. And so it just seems like the scariest ladder ever. And so um, there's a good uh, diagram from uh, 16 Streets, and it includes this. Uh, uh, figure of a person who just looks kind of ridiculous like their arms and li- their limbs are like un- like it's not a very good drawing of a human being human beings no. don't have those uh, proportions um when it comes to their arms and legs and their their heads aren't shaped like that <laughs> either so in any event so yeah so so this is basically what the the kind of picture that i'm trying to set up right is 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 we're we're currently loading the hypergalls uh on there now Unfortunately, and again, this is the first time we're turning around a shuttle, uh, a, a ground half couple uh, for the nitrogen, nitrogen tetroxide uh, loading on that purge and drain panel door uh, basically failed uh, during the propellant loading. And what happened was there was basically a, a bad seal. Um, between, you know, two parts of it, the, the ground half couple. Looking up what a ground half couple means is just that, you know, your connection, it's only threaded on the one half. And there's also evidently an air half couple, which I assume is another similar half couple, but that's one that's on the spacecraft that actually goes up into space. And so you've got the ground side and you've got the air side and they meet together. Um, when you're doing your feeling, your, uh, loading. And the way this is set up, too, is that the, uh, again, this, this one that ultimately where this uh, ground half couple had leaked, uh, when the orbiter is vertical, that means it's above the other panel. So it's at the top, uh, closer to the nose, right, which is at the very top of the vehicle. The way that they would do this, apparently, is that um, the, I guess, the, the connections on the orbiter itself are basically recessed uh, by a few inches from the, you know, the... Uh, outer contour of the orbiter. What they do is they have a a ground plate that they kind of put over that recess. That's I guess more or less flush with the outer part of the orbiter, and it has all the corresponding holes that match the corresponding connections uh, on the you know the orbiter's panel side. And then uh, but and then in between the two is a scupper uh, to basically just catch any little bit of you know uh, propellant that leaks out or any kind of liquids that leak out. And so they can just fall into this little scupper can and you're all set.
1: I mean, honestly, it sounds like nothing so much as a fuel valve on a car, right? Like you have this interface and you know, it's a lot less technical and it's a lot less demanding, but like you put the fuel valve from the, from the gas station into like a receptacle in your car, that receptacle is recessed and then has, you know, in the, on a car, it's got a flap on top of it. But like, you still have like a little catch basin for, for fuel that, that leaked out while you were, um, you know, you didn't tap off every drop. And like, yeah, like that, I think that's totally a reasonable way to think about this is instead of a single valve, maybe like the liquid fuel version of an electric car plug, right? Where that's got mm. a bunch of different terminals inside of it, a bunch of different conductors that have to connect. And it's just like a, you know, a couple of different fuel valves that all connect together. Yeah, totally reasonable.
2: That's a good analogy, yeah. Like, yeah, you just just change the scale and... You know the size of it, and also you know your tolerances <laughs> and how precise yeah. you have to be about everything.
1: Yeah. This yeah. goes to space, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Although uh, I guess they 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 had a bit of an issue with some of their tolerances, and um, they uh, it turns out right nitrogen tetroxide is an oxidizer because it reacts with fuel and it reacts with a lot of stuff and it oxidizes things. And so one of the products that comes from that is uh, iron nitrate uh, iron interacting with the nitrogen. And so evidently some iron nitrate had built up in, um, uh, the, some parts of the, uh, the, the ground half couple. And so it wasn't making a good seal when it was plugged in. And so what ended up happening during the spill is it depends on the source that you look at. One source will quote, uh, three gallons and just, you know, so that's, I mean, you picture a gallon jug and three of those. Okay. That's that's a lot of very dangerous uh, nitrogen tetroxide. But uh, another source that goes into greater detail than that one, which is a a public kind of NASA uh, link, there's there's a paper that talks about 15 to 20 gallons ultimately spilling, and based on the damage that it did to the orbiter, I think it's probably closer to that high number. And so yeah, um, 15 to 20 gallons is more than enough to fill up the scupper and just start overflowing and it just started pouring down to the side of the orbiter. And so this is where you've got a lot of tiles, right? Ultimately, these service panels are covered by tiles, right? This is part of the black nose of the space plane. and. The nitrogen tetroxide by pouring over the tiles had evidently seeped underneath and eroded the glue, the adhesive that was holding them there. And ultimately 370 tiles had to be replaced with most of them just straight up falling off. Like they just lost their adhesive strength and would bleep, just come off. And so I don't know if the seal between, cause it's the RCS room, right? Has to very tightly mate with, you know, the, 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 contour the outline of the orbiter when the rss is in the mated position but like they have some level of ceiling between them but like i don't know if it'd be enough to kind of keep these tiles from falling through and landing you know 200 feet down because this is all happening at the 207 foot level uh, above the, the the pad deck or the pad apron and so that's quite a quite a drop uh, if, if they did make it through there but other way or otherwise 370 uh, tiles were then piling up at the bottom of the RCS room so either way it must have been you know quite the sight and and all this happening again with uh, you know going back to the clue uh, a very toxic very dangerous uh, propellant that in in some cases i think when it combusts it gets you a big uh, flaming red cloud and so in this case it was just a uh, a big red spill So, so this happens. I imagine if anybody was around, um, well, they were probably still in their, uh, their scape suits, which stands for self-contained atmospheric protective ensemble. It's just a type of hazmat suit. Uh, you probably would recognize it. Um, it's a, it's the kind of suit you wear when you're dealing with things that'll, you know, very, very, very dangerous chemicals that are just (laughs) waiting for you to breathe them in. So what happened after this? Well, uh, according to uh, some of the reports, uh, quote, confusion resulted in wasted time. And so the spill uh, wound up being worse than it could have. Uh, So the correct alarms evidently went off at the pad. um, But the folks in the launch control room or launch control center uh, didn't know where the leak actually was happening. They just knew that there was uh, a leak. And so they needed confirmation from the techs who were still on the pad, but they, you know, weren't inside there. They were in their, you know, hazmat scape suits and just kind of, it took some time for them to be able to visually identify, oh yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nitrogen tetroxide and it's coming out of the, you know, the right FRCS. And so they were like at, you know, launch control, they saved the system, but that evidently didn't include isolating the quiz, the quick disconnect, which was still pumping the NTO into the scupper and then spilling all over the side of the orbiter. And so it wound up that they – it continued until they realized that that was the issue. And then they just kind of, I guess, had to close uh, – yeah, turn that off. In the future, they had uh, valves (laughs) – I guess, further upstream. So you wouldn't have to rely on that. Um, yeah. And, and, and some of the other issues involved that they assumed any spills would be small. And so they had uh, the little scupper, uh, that was there. And so, I mean, it's, it couldn't hold more than I would say a gallon, maybe, you know, if I'm being maybe generous, um, probably not even a full gallon. And so getting, you know, three gallons would be enough to get you a pretty bad spill. And then 15 to 20 gallons, certainly enough to get you a bad spill. So depending on where that was, one way or another, we had 370 tiles that just lost their adhesive and fell off and needed to be fixed. And plus you had to also clean it up, remove this poisonous stuff from the outside of the orbiter and you also had uh, there were also two blankets that needed to be replaced as well and that's just the, the direct effects they found uh, later that there were a lot of structural components so you know, I'm guessing like you know bracings and things like that inside the FRCS uh, itself that were corroded from vapors, which I guess makes sense because, you know, you've got the, um, yeah, like I, I imagine even if they had the, uh, uh, the RCS pods, the, uh, uh, nozzles sealed, which they, they, they would have had at this point. Um, they might not be like enough of a perfectly hermetic seal for fumes. Like the liquid wasn't getting in there, but the fumes could have gotten in there and the NTO likes, you know, again, interacting with stuff. And so there was some corrosion that they found. And in fact, uh, "Quote many years later," end quote. They found that several electrical connector backshells in the FRCS were also corroded, and so this uh, this really sucked and kind of jacked up the FRCS for for Columbia for a while. Yeah, and I like uh, Colin in the chat just wrote uh, the R in BFRC, the big F R cloud, <laughs> uh, could also stand for reactive because yeah, it is, uh it is a very reactive thing. It's red and reactive. So what happened? Well, uh, ultimately, they they did launch uh, the orbiter. Um, by, it was delayed basically a month or so. Uh, it, it launched on November 12th, um, but uh, it stayed at the pad the whole time. They didn't actually roll it back in. So those thermal tiles, I guess they picked them off the floor, <laughs> and they baked them in an oven, which would uh, vaporize the any of the NTO that was on them, and then they reinstalled them. And the thermal blankets uh, were just replaced. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if it was necessarily two. It was, it was several a handful of thermal blankets that had to be replaced. And once they did that, they were ready to go and ultimately had uh, launched. And so STS-2 was it was a good mission. It was a su- successful mission. It'd be, you know, another twist if, But this was uh, uh, Joe Angle, right, the X-15 pilot who got bumped from Apollo 17. So Jack Schmidt could be on there so they could have the scientist. And so he flew with uh, Dick uh, Truly. And, uh, and, yeah, it was a nice... Uh, uh, five-day mission, you know, went well. Uh, first one with uh canned arm, if I uh, remember correctly. But uh, this was something that definitely set it back a little bit. And so, uh, you know, the they had a, a committee get together and uh, investigate, and they had a bunch of lessons learned. Um, some of them, you know, kind of maybe more obvious than others. Uh, the scupper was too small. The fact that the ground handling uh, the, or the Half couple had a single point of failure was no good. <laughs> Just having a little bit of uh, iron nitrate uh, being enough to go and break a seal—that's uh, no good. Um, and they made some changes to emergency procedures and you know uh, investigating how iron nitrate is going to impact uh, preparing and servicing the shuttle uh, in the future. But uh, one way or another, this was a uh, pretty scary, pretty hairy moment. But nobody, nobody got hurt. Uh, let alone there were no casualties or anything like that. And so. All's well that ends well.
1: Oddly, it reminds me of the 1980 Titan uh Damascus missile silo failure or you know explosion, like it was a disaster. Mm. Um but this is like the good version of that. Mm.
2: This one has a happier ending. And yeah. um yeah, and 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 that's that's a great instinct, Ben, because in the you know, in the show notes, we'll have a link to a uh, a document from uh, Kennedy where uh, the title is called Hypergolic Propellants, the Handling Hazards and Lessons Learned from Use. And so that includes this Columbia incident, but it also includes the Titan one that you just brought up. And oh, so indeed, cool. that's, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you can read more about that in nitty gritty detail in this document.
1: I thought it was really interesting that you started out with uh, <laughs> talking about a ladder And the Damascus missile silo disaster started with somebody, I think on a ladder, using a absolutely giant socket wrench and Mm -hmm. dropping the giant socket adapter. And it pinged off the side of the rocket and started this leak. That was Aerozine. but. You started with a with a ladder, too, and I think that just prepped me to <laughs> to see the same story again.
2: Ladders and hypergalls do not go well together, yeah.
1: well, thanks, Dennis. that was that was really good. Um next week is the twenty sixth of September to the second of October. David, do you have a clue for us?
0: Uh, I do. Uh, the clue is in two thousand and four, victory roll. Uh, so not a sushi based clue, although it does sound like one.
1: <laughs> so if you have a guess as to what this clue is referencing, email us at info at com or shoot us a toot on Mastodon, use the hashtag SF or visit com slash discord for an invite to our discord
0: server. Good luck, everybody. Good luck. Moving on to upcoming spaceflight events. There are six different events. Uh, Half of them Starlink launches. What's the first Starlink (laughs) launch, Ben? All
1: right. So first up is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 617 uh, out of Cape Canaveral. This is going to be... sort of a wider window than the actual window number that they type in the computer because it's coming from uh, a launch, uh, viewing guideline that was put out. Uh, but it's Wednesday, September 20th between 01:47 hours UTC and 06:18 hours UTC.
0: All right. And then after that is another Starlink on the 24th and that's launching Starlink group 618. Uh, this is another Falcon nine block five, same as the one before, uh, the, uh, launch window for that is also a long one. So this is also awaiting official confirmation, but we have, a zero hundred six minutes UTC through zero four thirty seven UTC. So sometime in there, that's when the launch will be and also launching from slick 40 at the Cape. So yeah, just, uh four days later from the same launch pad.
2: And also on September 24th, Sunday, we have OSIRIS-REx touching down, hopefully. At least Mm -hmm. it's it's a capsule return and not the spacecraft. (laughs) Hopefully the (laughs) spacecraft will not be touching down. Yeah, just a capsule. Yeah, and so uh, this is going to be on NASA TV. And uh, the capsule touchdown is scheduled for 10 a.m. at the Department of Defense's Utah Test and Training Range near Dugway. And uh, tentatively, at 4 p.m. Eastern, uh, there will be an OSIRIS-REx sample return post-landing briefing.
1: After that, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 73. Uh, 3 This one is out of Vandenberg instead of out of the Cape on Monday, September 25th at 07.11 hours UTC to 11.31 hours UTC. Uh, and that window is as wide as it, as wide as it is because the they haven't released the actual window. We're going off in of no TAMs here.
0: Then after that, on the 26th, we have the launch of a long March 4C the payload is undefined, so we don't know what it is. Um, The launch time, or the launch window, is from 2006 UTC through 2029 UTC. Um, And it's launching from the Geotron Satellite Launch Center from Launch Area 4, SLS-2-603. slash Some more numbers that I forget what they mean, but Launch Area 4, and And you won't be able to watch it anyway. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead.
2: (laughs) And then finally, we have another uh, series of NASA TV coverage. And so this is on Wednesday. Wednesday, September 27th and at midnight 12 a.m. there will be coverage, and that's 12 a.m. Eastern, coverage of the hatch closing of Soyuz MS-23 at the ISS. Coverage will begin uh, at that point with the hatch closing scheduled for approximately 12.20 a.m. Then three hours later at 3.30 a.m. undocking coverage will begin. Uh, MS-23 is going to be leaving the pre-chall module uh, with the undocking itself scheduled for 3.51 a.m. Eastern. And then, at 6 a.m., we've got coverage of the deorbit burn and landing near Kazakhstan, uh, with the deorbit burn itself scheduled for 6.20 a.m. and the landing 7.14 a.m. And then... uh well, that's it. There'll be a replay a few hours later if you miss
1: anything. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events.
0: All right. And so it's time to do with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. For more information
1: on
2: this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com.
1: We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Colin, Mike, Chubby, Delta V, Citronaut, Astro, and the Greek for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly.
0: And if you want to support the show, please tell a friend or better yet, leave us a review wherever you listen. You can visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign and affiliate links.
2: Get in touch. Find links to our mailing list, Discord server, and Mastodon account at theorbitalmechanics.com slash about, where you can skip all of that by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: So that's it. We'll see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See See you. Oh, 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 oh,